to episode 203 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and joining me is Rachel Housel-Hall to talk about And Now She's Gone, published yesterday on September 22nd, 2020. I'm, de- I'm delighted to say this is Rachel's third time on the podcast. So welcome back, and thank you for joining me, and thank you for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you for inviting me, Nancy. I love coming on to your podcast and talking about books and my books and what makes my books my books. So thank you. <laughs> we love talking to you. I love talking to you. There's an incredible depth to this story. Uh, a cursory description would be that it's about a woman who reinvented herself and becomes a private investigator. And now she's gone is the story of her first case, tracking Isabel, a doctor's missing girlfriend. But it's, it's like an onion. Peel back a layer or two or 12, and you get, among many things, the depressingly constant violence against women, racism, the impossibility of transcending bad decisions. Same as it ever was. Anything to add? That, that is about it. I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, I like, as you know, I like going into these books with you know having the reader think, oh, it's just a simple case where she's looking for a woman and uh, the dog that she took from her ex-boyfriend, Ian. And it's so much more than that. Um, I like that crime and mystery, this genre, allows us to do the onion thing, to say what you think may have happened is so far from what is actually going on. And this is that book. Um, Yes, and now she's gone, deals with domestic violence and... Uh, racism and sexism and uh, just the, the the desire to disappear. And, you know, it's an L.A. story. So there are things about the city that are unique, um, that it's it's always been a place where people come to kind of reinvent themselves. And the the people in this story, the women especially, are in that process of reinvention. Um, well, you mentioned two things. One is the city of LA, and that's what we're going to get to that because that's something I'm particularly uh, interested in. And then, and then the idea of disappearing. And uh, you wrote a really wonderful piece in Crime Reads, which is, by the way, a fantastic resource for those yes. who love the genre about disappearing mm-hmm. and how difficult disappearing can be, especially now. And it made me think of that, uh, that uh, there was a French movie and then Jodie Foster was in that movie about, about who we think we are and, and who people think we are and, and how we project that onto people. And so when Grayson, which is the name of your protagonist, reinvents herself, she has to go through this process of def- First, she has to define to herself who she is before she can tell other people who she is. Am I close? No, that is absolutely correct. And and on top of that, trying to figure out who she is, she's trying to figure out also who Isabel Lincoln is. And how do you have the nerve to find and, and define another person when you can't even find and define yourself? So she's constantly having this kind of push-pull about the circumstances surrounding Isabel's disappearance and projecting some of her um, confusion and her anger 
and her reluctance about identity onto the doctor, the client, um, Ian O'Donnell, who, you know, he's an, he's an asshole. He's a jerk. Uh, he's a blonde god who is a doctor, and so he gets to be who he wants to be and talk to people and treat them how they want. He he wants them to be treated because of who he is and who he's perceived to be. So she's constantly having to, you know, peel off layer after layer of not just who she is, but the people around her and their motivations and their secrets and what's keeping them from being honest with her. So yeah, it's, it's an exercise. This book is an exercise and, um, identity. And um, I would say my trying to figure out who I am and what I believe and what women should do when they're faced with violence. So, yeah. Well, I, that, I, I know audience, Rachel cannot seize my questions because the next question <laughs> uh, I was in one of your tweets, you wrote that, and now she's gone was your most personal book. And so you got to tell me, I've met your husband. He's yeah, a wonderful no, guy. A, yeah. If, 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 if David is anything, he's more of Dominic than, than anything. He okay. is a, a rescuer. But, you know, I, those of us who write, we all tend to be nosy kids. Maybe not necessarily seeking out things, but we don't turn away when bad things are happening. We, like, look at it full face and we try and figure it out. And so writing becomes that thing where we're trying to figure it out. And as a kid, I saw, you know, the people around me. I paid a lot of attention between how adults talk to each other. And I grew up in a church and we've talked about, you know, this yes. before, especially with the awful down. I was surrounded by, you don't do this, you don't do that. Sin, go to hell, there's heaven. You know, all the ideas that, you know, most belief systems have, I grew up with. On top of that, though, I saw women who were um, abused by their husband. Maybe not necessarily all of them were physically abused, but definitely emotionally abused. But for those that were physically abused, it really, it haunted me and it scared me because here you have, you know, this perfect couple and I'm doing air quotes. Air quotes. And uh, you see this woman at church and she has makeup on and it's not quite covering the bruises, right? And you hear, you know, if you go over to your friend's house and you hear the wife and the husband in the kitchen and they're sniping at each other and he's just this mean snake of a man who just, you hate going over to that house because you know there's, you're going to be uncomfortable. Um, so I've seen, you know, friends, moms who are obviously being hit um, I remember like growing up and, and having my girlfriends and they're dating guys who are abusive and they feel trapped. And a lot of these women, you know, they are seeking out love and they haven't had love. And so they're willing to put up with the temper. They're willing to put up with the, oh, it's just a slaps to have that kind of love let's talk about Grayson Sykes your protagonist uh, complicated doesn't begin to describe her uh, <laughs> but maybe it takes one to know one does uh, when it comes to a woman who may have disappeared on her own we're talking about Isabel here or may have been disappeared against her will 
But what shone, what shined through, at least to me, was uh, Grayson's rock solid commitment to helping women avoid and escape mm-hmm. domestic violence, even though she lives in a constant state of fear, which I feel com- comfortable saying because you established that on the first page of the book. Mm-hmm. She's in fear. We don't yeah. quite know why and from whom. We right. assume it's from a man, but we don't know the whole story on the first page of the book. But right. she's, and, she's sympathetic. Well, and it's not all too... For, for many women, especially, um, there is like this low-grade sense of caution that we take as we move throughout the world, right? Right. Um, we make sure that we have our keys in our hand when we're alone in a parking lot somewhere, or we don't walk to a parking lot alone. We grab a coworker, or we ask the security guy to walk us to our cars. We, in some sense, are always, you know, protecting our bodies in some ways. So Gray being scared, yes, there are larger issues, but I would say it's kind of a day-to-day thing for, you know, I've been in a car and I've been driving home and the guy in the car next to me is kind of looking at me and Lord help me if I have a skirt on, he's trying to, you know, peek down to see, yeah. And that's just a regular commute. So yes, Grayson's scared, but so she would be just existing in this world, in this space that, you know, you're constantly reading about women being kidnapped, killed, hit, beat, somehow violated. So I wanted to reflect that kind of that low grade, always being careful, always being careful, always making sure no one's following you. Because that's just the state that we're, that you know, that we're... That we live in. Yeah. I I, um, was saying um, yesterday that I remember uh, when I I was a kid, and this may be for you too, for many women, when you wear a skirt when you're a little girl, you wear a skirt to school, and the first thing your mom says is put some shorts underneath that skirt so the boys won't see your panties. So you're immediately, you know, thrust into this, my panties will make make a male do something to me. As a kid, you don't know what that is, what will happen if he sees your panties, but there's something. And so you go and put shorts on, on underneath your, your skirt. So I wanted to reflect, you know, that kind of, that vigilance that women are kind of raised to, uh, to, to have, you know, as we go through life and, and, and Gray embodies that. Right. And she, I think, I think she uses what she she's able to channel what she's going through mm-hmm. in her work. And I, I found that really, really interesting an interesting part of her. I know we all bring ourselves to our work, but gray really brings herself to her work. Yeah, she does. And, and she gets slapped on the hand for that sometimes um, by her boss who says, you know, I know you have a thing against men like Ian. Uh, I know you have a thing against looking for women who may be in danger, but if you're going to be a PI, you have to push that aside. You, you, you gotta, you know, a lot of our clients are jerks. So Mm -hmm. deal with it. I mean, that's like us in all of our, our, our work. You can't just quit because, that guy over there eats his food loud or, 
you know, he mansplains a lot. You deal with it. That's being adult, right? So, yeah, she 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 brings her 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 baggage into her job, and that serves her well sometimes. But sometimes it makes her short sighted. Well, another thing that struck me about Gray is how she's constantly underestimated by almost everyone she encounters. Mm-hmm. Maybe <laughs> not her coworkers completely at least all the time, because they know her for who she is and how she can be an unrelentingly devious person when she needs to be. Mm-hmm. But everybody else, everyone she encounters, let's tick off why. She's a woman. She's a woman yeah. of color. She's uh-huh. not skinny. And uh-huh. she wears linen that wrinkles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. She has nicks. Um, she's, you know, organically distressed. I was looking at some... Um, we're, we're in the Ashley furniture store and they were advertising this furniture that comes distressed. And I'm like, that's just ridiculous. That looks like the, 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 the cabinet that I grew up with that has all the marks and everything. But uh, Grayson is organically distressed. And as a result, yes, yeah, she is ignored. People look at her crazy. And more than that, though, she kind of, in some ways, she's off balance because she sees that she's not perfect. You know, I remember, and I, you know, she has the the chocolate stain on her shirt. Right. We've all gone into a meeting <laughs> and we spilled the coffee or we have poppy seed in our teeth. And you could be the smartest person in the room, but you feel kind of off balance because you know that you don't, you're, you're not a hundred percent together because of that coffee stain or that, you know, thing in your teeth. And so Grayson's constantly battling other people's perceptions of her, but also her perceptions of her, because this is kind of like some new skin she's wearing in some ways. And she's not altogether comfortable or happy that she's in this new skin. So yeah, she goes into many interactions, holding her breath and hoping, you know, that people don't see past her or hoping that people see past her veneer because it's, it's, it's complicated. She's complicated. She's very complicated. She's onion. Yeah. But I also have to say, having read everything you've ever written, uh, <laughs> that I picked up shades of Detective Sergeant Lou Norton in Grayson. Yeah. Like they're maybe twin sisters from different mothers. Cousins. I would cousins. say cousins. Uh-huh. And, you know, mostly that Grayson, for all she has these moments of realizing her linen trousers are wrinkled, or having it pointed out to her by a coworker, <laughs> but she is confident and comfortable in her own skin. She knows she's an attractive woman, and mm-hmm. she knows that uh, she doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. She may want to, but she yeah. doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. You're, you're absolutely. You're absolutely right. She's smart. She knows she's smart, and at the same time, she hates that she's fallen into some things regardless of how smart she is. And like Lou, who is like the greatest detective ever, when she gets home, she has that bad marriage, you Mm -hmm. know? She doesn't have it all together in in every way. And for those of us who tend to be A-types, that one little thing that is not perfect just gets us and drives us crazy. And Gray is like that. She, she, she's very perceptive. She's very, um, uh, she's intelligent. She's well-read. She's interesting. 
she's she's brave. brave. Yeah, she's brave. And at the same time, she let herself get caught in a situation. And part of that is because um, of how she grew up. You know, a lot of, we, we wear our wounds and we try to tend to those wounds. And sometimes the medicine for those wounds is not the best. It seems okay for now, but then that remedy is actually, you know, a disease and you end up running from it. And so does Gray. It, it's funny you mentioned wounds because there's one thing that stayed with me from the story and I read it like <clears throat> the second I got the e-galley. <laughs> um, and I thought this was pretty profound and you mentioned wounds. And so I have to approach this obliquely uh, because mm. I want to sidestep any spoilers. But while she's investigating Isabel's disappearance and we're toggling back and forth with her backstory, she's working through a physical condition that's causing her pain. And yeah. I was deeply affected by that. And I, and I wonder, it's not something you had to do necessarily, but mm-hmm. I think it's important that you did. Yeah. So do you want to talk about wounds and, and, yeah. and carrying them? You started it in, right. the, in your previous answer. Yeah. Um, I wanted one, in her situation, um, she's very reluctant to seek help uh, because with, with, as I say in the beginning chapters, when you go to seek medical care, they ask questions and she doesn't want to answer questions because of her situation. Um, so I wanted her to uh, be affected by her reluctance to seek help for something that is really bothering her. I also wanted her to be afflicted by, you know, an organ that who knows what an appendix does, right? It's not Mm -hmm. your heart. It's not your lungs. It's nothing obvious, but it's your appendix who knows what it does, but it's hurting you. And so you, you take it seriously, but you don't, because what is this appendix? What is it anyway? And those are the things that can kill you. Those things that look harmless and seem to have no point. You let them fester and you end up, you know, on the floor somewhere or, or dead. And so I wanted her to be afflicted by this appendix and she has it taken out, but it's not taken out, you know, from the best doctors. And so it's festering. And so she doesn't want to go back for help because with help comes questions and with questions comes someone discovering her. Um, She wants to self-medicate because we all self-medicate. We see the problem and we don't want to do something about that problem because we're scared. We're all scared. Um, We know smart people who won't seek out help for a lump because what if it is something? Then you have to do something. You know, it's easier to just say, I won't feel that lump or I'll take a pill for that. And once again, the result is, you know, a condition that's worse than what it could have been or death. So yeah, I wanted her to have wounds, a physical wound to match her emotional wounds, her, her psychological wounds, um, because that appendix represents, you know, many of the issues she hasn't solved if that makes any sense. No, it does. And, and I just, I wanted to bring that up because I think it's, it, it also speaks to the completeness and the roundness of your storytelling. 
Thank you. That you included this. But now I want to talk about Los Angeles because I've spent uh, an entire career working for LA-based publications. Uh And it is so hard to get LA right. And people outside of LA do not understand this. No. And when you say you don't understand that, they roll their eyes and they say, well, it's I'm like, no, you York, really I, I know everything. <laughs> so you, I think you've got the people, the topography, traffic, streets and freeways, and the subtle shifts between and among neighborhoods in the city of Los Angeles and the 80 or so other cities in LA County. Mm-hmm. And I think you get it just right. You're, you're, when you're talking about the South Bay and you're talking about Inglewood, geographically, they're they adjoin. They butt up against each other. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mars and Venus. Yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. I no, I, I I am a native for those who don't know me like that. I am a native and I actually I love Los Angeles. And yes, we have problems, but everywhere has problems, but at least we have diversity and great food and the beach and usually, you know, most donuts. We have year. donuts. We have donuts, yes. All kinds of donuts, and it's exciting, and I had some yesterday, and it made me sick because I don't eat that much sugar and dough in one setting. But <laughs> there are so many great neighborhoods that are, you know, south of the 10 that many people don't see because it's not on TV. It's not in, you know, a lot of the books that they read. And neighborhoods are abutted against neighborhoods. Rich and poor sometimes live just a street away. And at the same time, you know, like I say in, in, in the books, it's so big, but for those of us who've lived here all our lives, it feels like a town. You can't go anywhere sometimes without saying, oh, there's so-and-so that I used to work with at that place back then. Or you go to a restaurant and there's a celebrity right there, but you don't care because they always come there and it just is, you know? I like that about the city. I like that um, neighborhoods have their own kind of vibe to them. Um, I, I, I like that the food in around our neighborhoods, I mentioned a lot of food places yes, from lots of Phillips and yeah, it, because it, 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 it makes you, it, it's home. And you know, peach cobbler. you mentioned yeah. a lot of peach cobbler. Peach cobbler. Oh my God. Not everybody can make it. And then, you know, even in LA, there's, we know when we go into a white part of town, when they say peach cobbler, they, we consider that crisp. We don't okay. consider that cobbler. So even in Los Angeles, there are differences in the terms of food. You know, the barbecues are different from place to place. Um, the, the, the burgers, we have a whole burger thing in Los Angeles. The Burger Wars, who's better, In-N-Out or Apple Pan or Father's Office, who I hate because yeah. they won't alter the, bur- the burger. You know, they're, they're little fiefdoms of food them here. And it makes up this city. We all are used to fires, right? Yeah. But this year is an extraordinary thing. But fires are a part of our lives, as smog days were when I was growing up. You Me remember too, smog yeah. days? We couldn't go outside and play on smog days. And that was just a part of LA living. Getting your driver's license in Los Angeles, when you hit, as soon as you turn 15 and a half, you're in driver's training. It's a thing in Los Angeles. So I like reflecting those things that people who who think they know a city, you have no idea what, you know, is a thing here, what is so important here. So, yeah, I, I, I like putting all that in, in, in my books. And it's, I think it's just really important 
for readers to understand. Uh, and I think for those of us who live in Southern California, live in Los Angeles, we can get some of the subtext mm-hmm. of, of it. And others, it's a little like a travelogue uh-huh. into, like you said, you know, South of the Ten, which, you know, I love South of the Ten. <laughs> and, you know, the food is great and I can't eat as much of it. I mean, we haven't, right. <clears throat> we haven't even talked about the tacos yet. Right, exactly. You know, that's a whole thing. Like I mean, you said, even us saying donuts. the 10, putting, you know, making it a thing with the 10, the 405 is such an L.A., California thing that, you know, it's a love letter to the city and to the people who, who, who make up the city, my books. And uh, we, we are duly noted. <laughs> um, so I want to move into a, another subject a little bit. I've been tuning into quite a few virtual crime fiction events, mm-hmm. and a lot of time has been spent on how these are unusual circumstances. Yeah. So, you know, people have heard that. Uh, but launching a book in a time of plague <laughs> is very different. Yeah. Writing one, though, this is what I want to talk about. Writing one isn't really, though. I know you wear two hats. You have a day job. We chatted briefly about how you can Zoom and WebEx with the best of them. Mm-hmm. When you're wearing your writer's hat, writing in the lockdown is like writing anytime. Yeah. Um, so what has changed for you with, with your writing? I can figure yeah. out, I've seen your schedule. I know that you talked to um, uh, Bolo uh, mm-hmm. people yesterday you've got uh virtual events coming up all, they're all on my calendar i've signed up i can't mm-hmm. figure out facebook live but all the others are on my, my calendar <laughs> um what what during this time has changed for you do you have more time for writing because you're not commuting or what's what's the deal so the biggest thing well there are two things one i've always talked about writing in my car right and I discovered that not having that commute has stunted me some. Driving on, you know, La Brea and La Cienega during during rush hour traffic, you're sitting a lot, right? And during that sitting time, I think about writing. I think about my characters. I beat out something with my, you know, my my sticky notes in in my hand. And now that I am home, I don't get that kind of liminal space to just think and brainstorm. And I didn't realize that until I think last month when I took my car into service way in Santa Monica. And I was trying to think of a story for to, to pitch. And as I was driving to Santa Monica, it was just coming. It was all these ideas were just coming. And I'm like, I miss this. Maybe I should just drive around Los Angeles and just think sometimes. So that was the biggest thing that that has changed for me. That's interesting. Um, And then also, there's no, with me working at home and writing at home, there's no separation now. Um, It's starting to meld. At one point, I had to use my own computer, my personal computer, to do work stuff. So I didn't even get to have separate devices to, to, to symbolize a break between my work life and my home life. And my home life, I mean, my work life, you know, I, I, I write for Cedar sinai And in the very beginnings of COVID, you know, my job was to help write crisis communications. And it was, it was 
an immersive experience. I'm, I'm writing all the time for work on the weekends, writing updates and all this stuff about the pandemic. And I would just, I'd be exhausted and I couldn't write my own stuff. I try, but I was just mentally wrecked. And so that was another thing that, that's affected me being able to, you know, separate my work life from my home, from my home writing life. Um, a few about a month ago, I finally got a work computer and I'm learning how to, you know, clean up my work area after work is done, clean it all off the dining room table to begin, you know, my own life and to reclaim some of that space back. So it's, it's, it's been difficult in, in, in those ways, me learning how to separate myself from my other self. So, yeah. You know, uh, you and I have spoken about uh, diversity in writing, and, and the mm -hmm. struggle isn't complete. But I think the efforts of writers, especially crime writers of color, which you're very involved, you and Kelly Garrett, um, I believe has begun to make an impact on the visibility of marginalized writers um, to the benefit of everybody, the writers and especially Definitely. the readers. Or maybe I'm just being a Pollyanna. Um, I think there's, I think, yes, that we're having an effect on publishing. I think more agents and editors are questioning their, you know, their bias that they may not know that they have. I think there is a, a, a desire to reflect all kinds of lives now. Um, I think publishers are starting to put some money toward it. I don't think it's going to be equal anytime soon. I think uh, there's still boxes being checked off that, okay, we have our, our two now, our two Black writers, and now we're done. Um, I'm hoping that a lot of the promotions that have been happening now in publishing, where they're, you know, African-American women especially, that it trickles to the genres. Um, a lot of times, as genre writers, from, from crime and mystery to romance and sci-fi, you know, we're not seen as real literature or important literature. And so don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, with these new hires and very important hires that we, we get some consideration that, that, that all these stories that we tell are just as valuable and important and informative as the obviously, you know, important literary fiction stories that get all the awards. So I, I'm I'm holding my breath, but not really because I'm a cynic in that way. I'm a mystery writer, you know. We we kind of cock an eyebrow at everything. Um, so yeah, but but I think in, in an immediate sense, there is more consideration on panels, um, on lists of things, um, and these Zoom webinars and all the rest of it. I think more writers of color are being included and asked to do things. I think we as, as, as um, writers of color are emboldened by it now. You know, it, it's okay to say that's not right. Because, you know, at this point in, in our political history, especially what do we have to lose by speaking Exactly. Out? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, as you mentioned that, when you mentioned our, our two African-American writers, I was thinking of the the infamous uh, Chicago Tribune story, uh, and, I, and uh, I don't I don't want to uh, pick on the poor young woman who wrote it. Yeah, because, no, we you know, got her right. I've, I've, for, for as a reader, 
I'm bored with those stories. You know, I'm, I, I, I've read everything that they can say, and now I want to read what anyone else will say about this story. I, I mentioned yesterday that, yes, there are only so many stories out there, but that, those stories change with who's telling them. And now I, I want, where is an Asian American Lou Norton or uh, or a Filipina Harry Bosch, because we're all bringing our experiences and our joys and our aches and and our celebrations and our food to these stories. And I want to read those stories. I'm I'm excited about what's possible. And as readers, I mean that's our job. I mean we disappear into these worlds. And who wants to who wants to eat at a food court where there's just Auntie Anne's pretzels, Panda Express? and Jamba Juice. You want as broad a choice as possible, and I want that in my reading. So here we're at my last question. Um, and Now She's Gone is your second standalone in a row. Yes. Are you thinking of continuing Grayson's story? In other ways, uh, in other words, this is my roundabout way of asking, what were you working on on that drive to Santa Monica? <laughs> um, I don't know if Grayson's going to have another adventure. I would like her to, just like I love, you know, for Lou to have another adventure. Um, right now, though, she won't be because I'm working on my next book, which is coming out in August. It's called These Toxic Things. And it's about a young woman who's, a, I call her a digital archeologist. In other words, she's a fancy scrapbooker who works for this tech company who uh, curates memories on like this Alexa device. You upload your pictures and uh, Mickey, that's her name, she writes narratives to go along with these memories. And she is curating the memories of a curio store owner who winds up, um, who ends up dead. And so as she's curating these, these memories, um, there's something weird going on with the store and there's something weird going on in Mickey's own life. So that's what I'm working on next. And then there's another story after that. And then who knows? I may come back to gray. I may not. I don't know. Who knows if we're even going to be here? The asteroids and the dinosaurs may come back because why not? <laughs> and on that cheery note, but I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping that you'll come back in August if we're, you know, if, if we're spared, yes, as they I'd say. Yes. And, and talk about that. And uh, so thank you. Thank you again, Rachel, for your time. Oh, thank you for asking me. I love being here and talking about things.